because we now have the Cinema Giant! Hello, 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 and welcome to the Cinema Judge. I hope my voice finds you well. To all my regular listeners, welcome back. And if you're new to the show, welcome aboard. Now, approaching the bench today, we have a very interesting film. It's called American Fiction, and it's directed by Cord Jefferson. And it stars the amazing Jeffrey Wright. And it's it's titled uh, Dark Comedy, High Concept Comedy, satire, and tragedy. But here's a tagline. A novelist who's fed up with the establishment profiting from, quote, black entertainment, uses a pen name to write a book that propels him to the heart of hypocrisy in the madness he claims to disdain. Here's a trailer for American Fiction. How did you come to write this book? What really struck me was that too few books were about my people. Where are our stories? Where's our representation? Would you give us the pleasure of reading an excerpt? Yo, Sharonda, girl, you be pregnant again? If I is, Ray Ray is gonna be a real father this time around. Thank you. Monk, your books are good, but they're not popular. Editors, they want a black book. They have a black book. I'm black, and it's my book. You know what I mean. Look at what they publish. Look at what they expect us to write. I just want to rub their noses in it. (laughs) I'd be standing outside in the night. Deadbeat dads, rappers, crack. You said you wanted black stuff. That's black, right? I see what you're doing. We sold a book. No. We believe Mr. Lee has written a bestseller. It's a joke. The most lucrative joke you've ever told. Now, is Stag a pseudonym? Yeah. Mr. Lee can't use his real name. Is this based on your actual life? Yeah, you think some bitch-ass college boy can come up with that? No, no. No, I don't. Can I ask what you were in for? Was it murder? You said that, not me. They ran 300,000 copies. Your books changed people's lives. They're offering $4 million for the movie rights. Yes! The dumber I behave, the richer I get. This has gone too far. Stag Arlie is still on the run for authorities. You haven't done anything. It's not like they can arrest you. Wish I could go back to not selling books. Is it bad to cater to people's tastes? People want to love you, Monk. You should let them love all of you. There's already so much buzz because of the movie deal. Michael B. Jordan is circling. We want to put him on the cover in one of those um, uh, scarves, I guess you would call them, tied around his head. A do-rag? Do-rag, that's it. Do-rag and a tank top with the muscles showing. Something called the fire department. (laughs) We're thinking we can get it out in time for Juneteenth. Now, from that trailer, you could obviously tell this movie has layers. You could watch it in many different ways, from different lenses. Watch it purely as a comedy, a social commentary, both. Whatever lens you want to look at it from, you could probably get something different from it. Somebody who happens to be a person of color, or a person who isn't a person of color, or just is different. or This is can be seen by and reacted to by 
in many different ways. And I personally reached out to several black friends of mine because I didn't really know where I could tread or not tread or talk about because this movie and or book that it's based on talks about white society expecting certain things from black people or any other people from color or what have you. But this is specifically black people and then how we want them portrayed or how we think they should be. And it is a complex issue that at first I'm like, ah, man, I, I don't think I'm qualified to give any kind of insight on this because it's a lot deeper than, than we really think it is, but it's anyway, I'm sorry. I'm stammering all over the place, but first we have a featurette for you. And in this featurette, you're going to hear from the director, Jeffrey Wright, and other people involved talking about the book, the movie, what it addresses. And, and it's just, this movie truly is a very unique film. And I hope it gets the attention it deserves. And there is talk about awards on this one because it, it is. It's it's so well directed, so well acted, everything about it. It's one of those rare films that come around that, again, it's not a tentpole. It's not a big blockbuster, but it says something. So the first featurette, this kind of gives you that little story of from book to page to here to movie. Here it is. Monk, your books are good, but they're not popular. American fiction is based on the novel Erasure by Percival Everett. Editors, they want a black book. They have a black book. I'm black and it's my book. You know what I mean. When I read the book, I felt the material deep in my bones. And so I knew almost immediately that I wanted to adapt it. I just want to rub their noses in it. <laughs> it's dealing with some super relevant age-old themes, along with a deep thread of comedy and irony running through it. We sold your book. <laughs> no. As soon as I met Ford, it was clear that he understood the spirit of the novel. As a joke. The most lucrative joke you've ever told. He took my material and made it his own. Is this based on your actual life? Yeah, you think some bitch-ass college boy can come up with that? No, no. No, I don't. There's something delightful in the simplicity of this story and what it's actually trying to comment on. I thought it was really funny and rooted in realness. I am thrilled to read a BIPOC man harmed by our carceral state. It explores identity, culture, race, family in a way that I think is really interesting. People want to love you, Monk. You should let them love all of you. The word court is made here. It's a fine piece of art. Once the screen goes dark, the lobby will be filled with conversation about this film. Yes! The dumber I behave, the richer I get. There's levity, but also an element of surprise. That, to me, is really keeping with the essence of the book. I really enjoy these kind of movies that bring up force almost, discussion, have people talk, and really dig your teeth into our greater society of what we expect from others and what we put out there as entertainment. And do we sometimes just do that out of just reaction. Oh, this is what people want. And do other entertainers do that too? Do they, in order to do a job or just get a job, they play into that and say, how can I get more ratings or how can I get more sales? What can I do to get that? And maybe some people lean further into that because I was talking to a few of my friends about that and it cuts both ways. I know this, I realize this movie talks more about um, the white people pushing it and buying it and 
making this happen, but it's, it is more than that. There is more people involved and it's more sides of it, more people of color that do push that and make it happen too. But I, I get it. It's, that's not the story they're really trying to tell here. It's, it's, it's more of this other one, but it does cut both ways. And I just love that discussion. So up first, we're going to hear from the author, Percival Everett, the guy who wrote the novel Erasure. And he talks about the story and the character. And then we're going to hear from the director, Cord Jefferson. And then we go back to the author and he talks about growing up and how he grew up. He didn't grow up like the books that he was seeing in the store. And I'll just let him talk about that story. It's really fascinating. And then we go back to the director and he talks about the story in the movie. And then we go back to the author and he talks a little bit more about the character of Monk. My name is Percival Everett. I'm the author of a novel called Erasure, which was published some 20 years ago. And is the source for this, for the movie American Fiction. The novel is about the impediments to making art that our culture puts in front of us. To give a nice, boring academic answer, uh, it's really about a pissed off writer who um, is unhappy with, with the treatment of his work. Um, the character is alarmingly similar to me, um, but it is not me, thank goodness. And um, he has met with some, I guess we call it career pitfalls. Um, his novels haven't sold particularly well. He has some trouble getting published. Um, and it seems that the, the problem always comes back to the fact that his work is a little too academic and not stereotypically enough black. I read this novel that I adapted, Erasure by Percival Everett, and like I fell in love with it almost as soon as I started reading it. I just sort of felt the material deep in my, deep in my core. Like no piece of art has resonated with me as deeply before or since. And so I knew almost immediately that I wanted to adapt it. And I knew that I wanted to write the script because that's what I'd been doing. I'd been working as a TV writer for about six years when I found this book. <clears throat> and then the more that I read, I started reading the novel in Jeffrey Wright's voice. That's sort of like how quickly I, I started thinking of Jeffrey for, to be in this movie. And then I started, the more that I read, I was like, oh, maybe I should direct this. And I think that the reason why I wanted to direct this, the reason that I felt comfortable doing that was I told myself, if I go on set every day, if I go on set and I know nothing about lighting, and I know nothing about cameras, I at least know this story like in my bones. Growing up in, in, in the U.S., uh, when I would go to the bookstore, um, if, I were, if I were to see black characters, they would be depicted in novels of the antebellum South or um, always uh, in the inner city. And I was a middle-class black kid. Um, that was my family. My father was a doctor. My grandfather was a doctor. We didn't exist in print or on screen. And so that, that, that's, that's pretty much the root of, of, the, of the problem in the novel. The story of the film is, is uh, uh, an author named Monk Ellison who uh, feels uh, pigeonholed when it comes to his role as a black artist in the world and feels like there are rigid restrictions on what people say he can and cannot write. And so to fight back against these restrictions, he pulls a prank and writes a, uh, writes a novel called My Pathology that contains all of these black stereotypes that um, he sort of resents 
And then he intends to send this book to publishers in order to shame them for the kinds of material that they solicit from black writers. Um, he anticipates that this book is going to be a piece of performance art in which all these, all these white publishers are embarrassed um, about the work that they solicit, and it ends up becoming a massive bestseller. The most basic story here is, is about that writer who can't fit in. He has uh, familial problems with his, um, his brother, his, 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 his uh, mother who is approaching dementia. But navigating, not, it's a character because of, of his upbringing and how it doesn't allow him to fit perfectly comfortably in this American, into this American culture, um, he's trying to find that, that comfort and, and, and find a place. I could sit and listen to Percival Everett talk all day. His intelligence, his wisdom, his calm demeanor. Is that right, demeanor? How do you say that word? I think you know what I mean. But the guy is so intelligent. Just just keep talking. I could just sit here, tell stories about your life. You know what? Just, I'll just love him to let you go. That'd be great. Just talk to us. I don't know. I, I think the guy's just, what a guy. Now, coming up next, I'm going to play you a couple featurettes. And later on in the show, I'm going to give you a website. If you want to watch the TV show with no interruptions from me at all, you can go to this website that I'm going to give you later on. Because in these featurettes, they have clips, they have on-the-set footage, they have a various amount of things going on that you just can't really see when you're listening to this. So if you want to, it sometimes gives a lot more clarity when you watch the TV version of it. In this featurette, just like the other one that you heard, some of this stuff is going to be redundant. There is some repeating little lines or sentences or clips from the movie that we play several times in these featurettes. But it's more about getting the point across about what this movie is truly about, the characters, the development, the author. It's so They're saying so much. So I'm just going to sit back and let you listen to these featurettes. Again, some of them may be redundant in, in little aspects, but they offer a little something different in each one. Here it is. Monk, your books are good, but they're not popular. Monk is a writer, but for those few people out there who still read, they don't like what he's offering. He doesn't want to be pigeonholed in terms of the stories that he writes. Look at what they published. Look at what they expect us to write. He's sick of the racial politics of being a black artist in the world. I just want to rub their noses in it. So he pulls a prank and writes a new novel. Hello? I be standing outside in the night. Deadbeat dads, rappers, crack. You said you wanted black stuff. That's black, right? I see what you're doing. And it becomes the best-selling novel of his career. We believe Mr. Lee has written a bestseller. As a joke. The most lucrative joke you've ever told. But then he sees folks like, this is amazing. This has gone too far. Stagar Lee is still on the run for authorities. You haven't done anything. It's not like they can arrest you. I think it's going to be really gratifying for people to gather in a theater and watch this. If you're wondering, what has Cord Jefferson done? Because this guy, you need to know more about Cord Jefferson. He's a, just what he's done. He's a, a story editor. He's a writer executive story editor. He's He writes stuff. I'm just going to give you a list of things he's involved in. And I'm not going to say what each thing... He, he did those kind of things in all these things I'm going to list. He's just so talented, it's hard to list everything he's done. But he's been involved in the TV show The Good Place, Watchmen, Station Eleven, which was a great show. If you've never seen that one, Station Eleven. 
master of none. And that's just some of the stuff he's done. This guy has so much talent. I really just look forward to more and more what he does in the future. Because a person of this much skill, I just can't wait to see what he gets his hands on, what what he wants to create, what people give him. I mean, he could do it all himself anyway. He doesn't have anybody giving anything to him. That's what makes this era of movies and TV so outstanding, so rewarding, because all these people now have a voice. And now we get to see all these different kind of stories, not just your same cookie cutter stuff day in and day out. Now we live in, I almost call it the second golden age of television and or movies. So I think we should count ourselves lucky that we have people like Corey Jefferson in our creative world as we speak. So we're going to hear from him, and he's going to talk about Jeffrey Wright, and then we're going to hear from Jeffrey Wright talking about the story and the character. And then we go back to the director, and he talks about working with Jeffrey Wright. And I love what he talks about here. He talks about, hey, he has every right to be this guy who goes, oh, I don't have to talk to anybody because I'm so-and-so. But no, Jeffrey Wright is just this down-to-earth guy who wants to do the job right, and he's collaborative and everything like that. It's just a really cool interview. And then we go back to the author, and it's really nice to hear this too, when he heard Jeffrey Wright was going to be part of this, he's like, oh yeah, who else could play this role? So knowing an author is just thrilled to have somebody play this role that you, you wrote. It's it's your creation, your baby. You're entrusting it to these people. And you know when it's in their hands, they're going to do it right. Because with Corey Jefferson and Jeffrey Wright, obviously it's going to be a touchdown. And we go back to Jeffrey Wright, and he talks about some of the touchy themes in this movie. But it must be very rewarding as an actor. This is something I really want to sink my teeth into. I would think as an actor, obviously, that's why he took it, the rewards of doing a film like this must be incredible. I just think that Jeffrey has this real air of gravitas around him at all times. He seems professorial in a, in a very real way. And so, uh, and I also think that he had the ability to play like a lovable grump. I think that that's a very difficult uh, part to play because I think that if you err too far on the side of grump, you lose people and nobody wants to root for you anymore. And so I think Jeffrey had this really nice, um, had this really nice blend of kind of like professorial gravitas and maybe a little prickliness along with it, but also the ability to sort of, you know, keep you rooting for him, sort of like a softness and an, and an, um, relatability that sort of like keeps you on his side throughout the course of the film. I also think that he's a really funny comedic actor. I think that obviously people know him for his dramatic turns and he's obviously great in all those, but I, I sort of anticipated that he was going to be like a really funny um, comedic actor and a perfect kind of straight man for all the absurdity that's going around him in the, in the rest of the movie. The film is about um, a guy. He's, he's a writer. He teaches He's out in California. You know, he's doing reasonably well, uh, but he's not really satisfied. He's not really satisfied with his writing career. His social life is pretty, uh, is pretty stagnant. Um, and he returns home to Boston for, uh, for a book fair. Uh, and he also returns to see his family, which is a source of some anxiety for him and some frustration as well. Uh, at this book fair, uh, he he discovers the success of a writer named Centaurus um, uh, Golden, played by Issa Rae, and he becomes very quickly somewhat jealous of her success. 
But she writes a different type of book than his. He writes things that are fairly, you know, uh, abstract, intellectually, intellectually a little bit obscure even, uh, whereas she writes things really for the masses. And so um, he discovers her, discovers, you know, her success in the midst of kind of the... Um, the uh, deterioration in some way of his family and the pressures that come uh, onto his shoulders because of that uh, lead him to even greater frustration, which ultimately leads him to writing a different type of novel. He writes a novel that uh, I guess is kind of an urban novel, maybe a more populist uh, story that he tells, uh, which uh, becomes a great success. Um, much to his chagrin, because he really, he writes the thing under a, a pseudonym. Uh, but the success of that no- novel allows him to take care of some of his family responsibilities and, and things like that, but they lead to a greater and greater sense of, uh, of confusion and perhaps shame for him uh, professionally, uh, artistically, creatively. And so that whole kind of mix of stuff uh, you know, uh, just boils up in the cauldron of this film, and he's trying to survive, survive it all. He was really a collaborative person to work with, and he sort of really wanted to to get in the weeds with me on the character and on the film and and the scenes. And he was just, uh, you know, I sort of had anticipated that he might be this kind of, you know, because he has every right to be kind of this standoffish sort of like I'm an incredible thespian, and so. Um, but he wasn't that way at all. He just came in and was super enthusiastic about working with me and the rest of the actors and sort of finding the scenes and finding the film. So, uh, yeah, I will, I'm forever grateful to him for that. Well, the character's name is Thelonious Monk. Um, uh, uh, I'm sorry, his middle name is not Monk. His middle name, his nickname is Monk because of his first name, Thelonious, last name Ellison. Uh, uh, a rather obvious tribute to both Ralph Ellison and Thelonious Monk. Um, he's played by Jeffrey Wright. Um, and as soon as Court told me that, that, this, that Jeffrey was the person he had in mind, I couldn't think of anyone else um, who could play this character. So this worked out well, beautifully. Um, and Wright's portrayal of Monk is so nuanced and and quiet, but in no way timid, that one can't help but be engaged with him. It's dealing with some super relevant, um, super tricky, uh, kind of age-old themes that exist uh, both in our society and in our storytelling. Um, but there's a deep thread of comedy running through it and parody and irony. Uh, and I was really um, quite uh, drawn to that, that balance. In our next featurette, we're going to hear about working with Jeffrey Wright. And I just love hearing other actors talking about other actors because, you know, that kind of chemistry, when you're on set, it, it just oozes out to us, the viewer. Because if people aren't getting along... A lot of times, not not every time, but a lot of times you can just feel, man, it just doesn't seem right. But when somebody, when everybody gets along and they enjoy each other's creative abilities, 
it usually shows through. And we're going to hear people talk about that. And these people that are talking aren't slouches. These people are talented individuals. We're talking Sterling K. Brown, SRA, Tracy, Ellis Ross. And just hearing them rave about Jeffrey Wright, you know the guy has it all. It's quite a milestone for me to get a chance to just share the screen with Jeffrey Wright. People want to love you, Monk. You should let them love all of you. I text my mom, I got to work with Jeffrey Wright. She was like, what? <laughs> the minute Jeffrey signed on, I was so excited. He's an incredible actor. Jeffrey becomes something different in every role. And I didn't know that he was a laugher, but we met him laughing a lot, which made me really happy. The film offered me a character to wrap myself around on the most personal and kind of emotional level that I could sink my teeth into. Now, just in case, just in case, on a shot out of nowhere, you might not know who Jeffrey Wright is. And I, and if you don't know off the top of your head, once I name off just a sliver of his work, you're going to go, oh, okay. Now, there's no way I can name everything he's in because, because he's, he's so talented. He, he's in such high demand. But I'm going to give you a brief rundown here. The French Dispatch, The Batman, Broken Flowers, Shaft, What If, I Am Groot, Rustin, Asteroid City, which is a great movie, by the way, Batman, The Audio Adventures, The Sandman, and of course, the HBO mega hit Westworld. Again, that's just the tip of the iceberg, but that's who Jeffrey Wright is. I mean, he is a chameleon. He could do so many different kinds of roles. That's what kind of sets him apart too. He could do comedy. He could do action. He could do sci-fi, voiceover, you name it. The guy can do it without even blinking. And that's what makes him so in demand is really the word I'm looking for. Because if you have a project, you go, hey, I want to make this authentic. I want to make it believable. Who are you going to call? You're going to call Jeffrey Wright because he has everything you could possibly want in an actor. But coming up next, we're going to hear from the writer-director, Cord Jefferson. And even though Monk, played by Jeffrey Wright, his character is a bit of a grump, the, the real challenge was this. How do we get the audience to really sympathize or support him or back him? Well, you surround him with people who do love him and do understand him. So then we get to kind of get that behind the scenes look at who he is as a person, not just because he's sometimes you can look at him as a grump. In the same vein, we're going to hear from Erica Alexander talking with the character of Monk, also Sterling K. Brown. And then we have a scene. And the scene is Monk walks into a bookstore and he's wondering where's, where's his book. But the guy who works there doesn't know who he is. And he asks where my books are or his books or the, the author's are. He takes it to him and he looks up. It's under African-American studies. And he's just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This book isn't about that. It's just a book. The, cap- the characters have to be black, but it's not a black story per se, if that makes sense. And the, the, more, the Sterling K interview talks more about that. And it's a really great interview. And that's one thing I've always wanted people to talk about too, is sometimes how this stuff happens where people start pigeonholing stories about black people or, or anybody of minority about always having to be just about being black, not just a story just with black people in it. Does that make sense to you? Because sometimes you see stuff like that where let's say if it's a heavily black story, it has to be about being black, but not just about a story about a doctor and a lawyer, just who are black. Uh, and I might be talking in circles here, but that Sterling K. Brown interview, he kind of sums it up really much more professionally than I could possibly ever dream of. Anyway, here's those interviews and that clip. One of the keys 
to, I think, making a lovable grump work on screen is um, surrounding him with people who love him despite his grumpiness, right? And so I think that you you sort of teach the audience that uh, as sort of pugnacious and kind of prickly as this character is, there are people who are not that way who love him and sort of like can see the good side of him. And that kind of teaches the audience like, oh, okay, if they like the, if they like this guy, then maybe I should like this guy. It's sort of like when, you know, when your friend introduces you to one of their friends and you're like, not sure about this, but you're, you really like your friend and you're like, okay, if my friend likes this person, then there's probably something good here that I should, I should pay attention to. And so surrounding Monk with characters who were much more effervescent and buoyant and joyous than him was, I think, a sort of like key toward letting the audience in and sort of like helping the audience to root for Monk more, right? Is that they're like, you're like, oh, Coraline, who's like lovely and vivacious and formidable, she loves Monk. And, and, and Cliff, his brother, who's like really sort of like a bundle of energy and joy and, and happiness, he, he loves Monk. Um, and so I can see a way to love Monk. Monk is a man who right now is caught in the middle. He's like in between a rock and the abyss. And he chooses the abyss. You know, he jumps because um, a lot of things in his life have not only frustrated him, but just have, you know, just been just beyond his reach. And I think he's frustrated and I think he's a little lonely, but I also think that he's ready to make a transformation. So the wonderful thing about Monk in that name, Monk, who you think is kind of, you know, sequestered or something, is that he's born anew and he's going to, you know, be a new man. But, yeah, that's who Monk is. Monk, uh, Thelonious Ellison, uh, played by Jeffrey Wright, uh, is the protagonist of our story. He's a professor, a novelist, and someone who, who doesn't necessarily believe in race, I think, is probably one of his most interesting features. And while he is an African-American novelist, he does not wish to create novels that are specifically and only for an African-American audience. He wants to have a larger audience. Um, and sort of is frustrated with the idea of being pigeonholed as just an African-American artist. Um, has dated white women. His brother Cliff comments on it when he sees him dating a black woman. He's a bit surprised, what have you. Um, but I, I think he is is intelligent. He comes from a very well-to-do black family in Boston. You know, he has two siblings who are doctors, me and my sister are doctors. He's a PhD. He calls himself a doctor, but we know it's not, like, really a doctor. Um, but, you know, high achievers. And uh, what else can I say about him? Like, He's he's sort of like really trying to reconnect with himself. One of the themes of the film is about soulmates and how people were created originally with like two heads and two bodies and sort of like the gods decided to separate them so that they could not have their ultimate power come into their fullness of themselves. And so there's there's a theme in the film about him sort of coming back into grasp with whom he actually is. There's a part of him that feels disassociated and disconnected from himself. And the movie touches on that very deftly, uh, very wittily. 
Excuse me. Uh, Ned, do you have any books by the writer Thelonious Ellison? Yeah, uh, this way. Here you go. Right. Yeah. Wait a minute. Why, why are these books here? I'm not sure. I would imagine that this author, Ellison, is black. That's me. Ellison. Yeah. He is me, and he and I are black. Oh, bingo. No, no bingo, Ned. These books have nothing to do with African-American studies. They're just literature. The, the blackest thing about this one is the ink. I don't decide what sections the books go in, and no one here does. That's how chain stores work. Right. And you don't make the rules. I'm just going to put them back after you leave. Don't you dare, Ned. Do not you dare. I don't know about you guys, but I love hearing the behind the scenes of how somebody got involved in the business. And up next, we're going to hear from writer-director Cora Jefferson describing that. And I've been telling you how talented this guy is the whole episode. But now I'm going to have some of the other people tell you just how awesome he is. We're going to hear from John Ortiz, the author, Jeffrey Wright. And then finally, we hear from the author again, talking about the family in the story. But I love hearing the praise about the director. So before I was in film and television, I worked as a journalist for about eight years in uh, various capacities. I was a music journalist for a little bit. I was a blogger for a little bit. Um, I was a White House reporter for a little bit, uh, doing political reporting. Uh, I was just kind of a jack of all trades in that industry. And then uh, I always sort of had an interest in film and TV and always thought that I might like to pursue screenwriting one day. But I didn't really have any idea how to break into the world. It's, you know, it can be... It can feel like there's a lot of obstacles to getting into entertainment if you're not in entertainment already. And so fortunately, one day, a, a guy named Mike O'Malley, uh, who was uh, the showrunner for this show called Survivor's Remorse that was based loosely on LeBron James's life. It was on Stars. He reached out to me and said that he'd read some of my journalism and said, uh, I think you might be good at TV writing. Would you want to take a chance? And so uh, I did. I, I, I took my first TV job, and then uh, I never looked back. I really, really loved it. I really loved the collaborative nature of it. Um, and I just went from there. When I read Erasure by Percival Everett, it, it resonated with me deeper than any piece of art ever had. Um, and I think that that was because, you know, it wasn't just because the professional themes of sort of the limitations that people put on black writers and, and creatives of color and sort of the limitations that people have about what our lives look like. Uh, it was also because there was a lot of family themes that were going on in the book that really uh, resonated with me. You know, the 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 book is about siblings and sort of, uh, you know, I have two siblings, Monk has two siblings, and, you know, the dynamic of those siblings sort of felt similar to my dynamic. Um, you know, the, the book has a, you know, I don't want to spoil it, but the book has issues with the mother that really sort of felt like issues that I had with my mother. Um, there was just all these kinds of overlaps between Monk's personal life and my personal life. And I think in order to sort of like make a really um, passionate adaptation that doesn't feel like bloodless, like you're just doing it um, by rote, you really need to find what speaks to you personally in the story. And so there was just a lot of it in the book that spoke to me personally and felt I felt like uh, really grounded and rooted in the story that, that gave me a way to, to find the courage to direct it. Because um, I think if I'd been less passionate about the story, directing it would have been a much more difficult uh, prospect. Yeah, Cord is great. I, I didn't know much about Cord um, until I read the script. And uh, 
he's such a good writer. And, um, and the novel, uh, Erasure, that this script is based on, obviously touched something deeply in court. And it's so personal. Um, and I can't think of any other director to direct this project because he's he just his 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 DNA is in it. You know what I mean? And um, and it's and it's um, and it's really special to see him in action and 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 the amount of care and uh, and the leadership that he's providing with his vision. You know that specific personal. Uh, connection that he has and how to translate that into images, into scenes is, um, is beautiful to watch. He's um, uh, quite comfortably self-assured. He's not cocky at all, but you, he, he exudes um, uh, uh, an air of confidence. Um, and, and you believe in him right away. And this is kind of remarkable. He read this novel in 2020, and here we are in 2023, and it's being re- released. Um, I've never, I've never seen anything like this. So I'm impressed by him on, on a number of le- levels. Uh, he certainly understood the novel. Um, uh, more importantly, he understood the spirit of the novel, and it was clear to me talking to him that he understood what had to change in the novel to make it filmic. I thought it was. Uh, ex- exactly uh, what it should be. He, he took my material and made it his own. Um, he did something I would not have been able to do, which is which was, uh, transmute the novel into a screenplay, because you can't have everything from a novel on, on the screen. And I wrote all of those scenes because I liked them. I wouldn't have been able to divorce myself uh, competently from them to make something as, as, as coherent as he did. You know, he's just, uh, you know, he's just got something in, you know, innately that has served him very well here. And obviously he's got a clear vision for this film because he, you know, he, he, you know, he adapted the, 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 the novel and he's combed through it and he knows it. He knows every corner of it, every hidden, you know, uh, hidden room within the script. And he's, uh, and he's just, you know, um, he's been super, super clear about, you know, what he wants to do. And he's also been really very smart in inviting uh, uh, a, gr- a group of creative people to the room who could help him realize the vision. Just a great, um, you know, a great um, ensemble, not just in front of the camera, but behind the camera as well. So, yeah. He seems to uh, he seems to have an idea about what he's doing, you know, right out of the gate here. It's been pretty impressive. Yeah, been been a great collaboration. And for me, working on these things, you can have a great script, you can have you know a great cast, you can have you know all the money in the world, but you know if the collaboration isn't there, if the quality of you know of the partnership uh, isn't uh, you know isn't top-notch you have nothing it's all about the collaboration and it's been a it's been a a really wonderful one working on this i hope audiences take away from this film uh, a smile that's all that's all i want them to take away from it i think that i think that i'd never wanted this movie to be didactic or or feel like it was uh 
you know, giving people moral lessons. I think that uh, I don't want to, you know, to me, the movie, the intention of the movie is to give you a series of scenes and characters and situations and allow you to to make your own decisions about it. I think that that to me is really keeping with the spirit of the novel that I adapted. The novel itself doesn't try to offer offer any um, solutions or answers. It's sort of more about asking questions, and and to me, that's what that's what I wanted to maintain in the film was the was the essence of of the novel in that way. And so, you know, I just want people to come in and have a good time and enjoy themselves. You know, something that's been really really heartening to me is the number of people who have told me that like as soon as I get like as soon as I got out of the theater, I like rushed to like talk to a friend who had seen the movie too, so that I could talk to them about it and sort of like go to dinner with them and talk about it. Or I turned to the person that I went to see the, the movie with and said, do you want to go get a drink and talk about the movie? Like that to me is, is all that I really want people to take away from the film is, is something that, you know, they want to turn over in their minds a little bit after, after having this sort of hopefully a joyful experience for the past couple hours. This is an intellectual, uh, fairly well-heeled family living in in America that isn't simply um, a white family painted brown. Um, who They have to deal with, with the fact that they exist in the culture as um, um, other um, and do so in, in, with the use of, of humor, irony, and, and, and fierce intelligence. So what do you guys think? Is this the kind of movie that you want to see? Did I present this okay? Did I give you enough evidence? And like I said earlier, I made sure I talked to a lot of my friends about even discussing too much about this because there's so many ways this movie can be seen and with different kind of lenses. If you ever have any questions, comments, or concerns, email me, cinemajudge at hotmail.com or visit me at Instagram, the Cinema Judge. Go to YouTube, feel free to leave a statement there, comment, because I can't grow if I don't know. I'm not here to cry, scream, anything like that about Hollywood. Leave that to professionals. I'm here to share a movie with you, to give you a deep dive, because there's enough noise out there. I just want to provide a little bubble, a movie oasis, a place where you can come and learn about one movie and not have me tell you this or that. Because I will never tell you not to see a movie. Because any movie is somebody's favorite movie. We all walk different paths. Who am I to tell you to see something or not see something? I might tell you if I like it. But there's no way on earth I would tell you don't go see something. Because that's up to you to decide. So you can find me on most platforms. And I'm also on TikTok from time to time. Feel free to leave me a comment. That's how I get better. But now it's one of my favorite parts of the show. This is where I thank you, the listeners, for listening to the podcast. This doesn't go to anybody who listens to YouTube or other areas like that, because that stuff's impossible for me to figure out who listen to and where you're located. So if you want to be shouted out to or give a thank you, listen to it on some other platform, whatever platform you got that plays podcasts, then I'll be able to give you a shout out. And this is just ballpark. Everybody from the United States, Germany, Chechnya. Sweden, Spain, Belgium, Guam, Canada, St. Paul, Minnesota, Prague, Los Angeles, California, Gothenburg, Vistra, Gothland County, Creffield, North Rhine, Westphalia, Frankfurt, Aim, Maine, Hesse, Valencia, Brussels, Brussels Capital, Berlin, Munich, Bavaria, Guam, Marquette, Michigan, Worcester, Massachusetts, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Toronto, Ontario, 
San Jose, California, New York, New York, just to name a few. I am so grateful that you guys take time out of your busy life to listen to this show. It blows my mind. And don't think for one second when I see your city, state, or country show up that I don't celebrate. I always do a little private dance on my chair. Yeah, it's embarrassing, but it's true, and I do it. So I really, really thank you for taking time to listen to the show. And I love hearing about that. Some of you people listen to when you go to work, sitting at work, on break, sitting at home, whatever you're doing. Thank you for doing that and spread the word if you want to. Give me a like or follow on YouTube, whatever you want to do. If that makes you, if, you know, if that makes you feel comfortable enough to do it, I'd appreciate that. So wherever, whenever, or whatever you're doing, that shout out was for you. And this week's bourbon shout out goes out to Javant. Thanks for letting me always use your ear and thanks for all your help on those, all those other things you've been helping me out with. <laughs> it's a coincidence that we were able to touch base at that right time and help each other out. But you to you, sir, to everything you've done for me, helping me out. Cheers. Now, if you're a regular listener to the show, you know when I'm making a TV version of this, I'm cranking tunes. But before I get to that part, if you want to watch the TV version of this and watch it on demand whenever you want, 24 hours a day, and a TV version doesn't have me at all, you don't see or hear me one bit, go to bit.ly slash cinemajudge, bit.ly slash cinemajudge. And these shows are on there usually for a couple months. So if you listen to this right now, within a couple months of this happening, you'll be able to watch a TV version of it. But when I'm making that TV version of it, that is the epitome of my happy place. I'm sitting here in my basement, editing the TV version, and I don't have to talk, think, do anything. I'm making a giant infomercial. That's what I kind of think of it in my head. Giant infomercial, cranking tunes, and having a blast. And once again this week... I played stuff that I'm so familiar with, I don't have to really be distracted too much. I still love the stuff in the background, but it's not so new in my world where I have to sit there and listen to it, because sometimes that happens. I put on something relatively new or something I don't always listen to, and I get so distracted, I end up jamming in my chair, having a few beverages. Next thing I know, it's the wee hours of the morning, and I'm like, oh man, I haven't finished a TV show yet. So I've learned through years and years and years of doing the TV version, which has been well over 20 years now, I can't always put on something that's new-ish in my world because some people might ask, why do you always listen to the same stuff over and over? Well, A, it's I, I know it, and B, it's just fun, and I don't have to think about it too much. So this week, I played England Dan and John Ford Coley. They're the kings of some great 70s tunes, just super mellow, relaxing all is good when you listen to those guys. Some great tunes. And in case you want to know some of the titles, I'd really love to see you tonight. Westward Wind. Nights Are Forever Without You. And just randomly, The Prisoner. And here's the deal with The Prisoner. Years ago when I first heard that song, in my mind's eye, I'm like, this sounds way too personal. What, what's up with that? So years later when the internet came around, I searched it up. And I guess to those both those guys... They follow the same religion. And off, off the top of my head, I apologize. I don't remember what it is or what it was. But the song The Prisoner is about the guy that the religion or something like that is based on. So it's kind of a fascinating story about this, this person that these guys are both fascinated with and they create this song about. So look up The Prisoner or listen to the song. Because again, when I first heard it years ago, I go, man, this sounds too personal or too real wonder why. So, voila, 
You search and you shall find. By the way, other than that, they have some really great tunes. Again, that's England Dan and John Ford Coley. And then I put on legendary Pat Benatar's Greatest Hits. Every song on there. It says, no, every song, just smooth, rocking, some ballads, whatever it is. But Pat Benatar, if you haven't listened to her in a while, throw down her Greatest Hits. It truly is just magnificent. And then I shifted gears again, do on the mellow side. I went to the best of Lobo. You might go, who's Lobo? You know Lobo. Just give you just look him up. There's some great songs. Like the legendary song, Me and You and a Dog Named Boo. I would love you to want me. Don't expect me to be your friend. Don't tell me goodnight. How can I tell her? And so on and so on. Just throw them on. You'll understand what I'm saying. Check out some Lobo. Well, that is it. My glass awaits. I'm thirsty. So cheers to you and to the movies. So till next time, be well, be good, and I'm gone. I'm Jeff. Thanks for listening to The Cinema Judge. (laughs) 